Hi, I'm Don Cameron. And I'm Amanda Branch. We're your co-hosts for an intellectual property law podcast series brought to you by Bereskin and Parr LLP. You can find our episodes at bereskinparr.com slash podcasts. Go there and you can access all the episodes and additional information on each topic. Now let's tune into today's episode. Hello, everyone. My name is Izzy Calder, and I'm a patent partner at Breskin & Parr LLP. Today, we will be talking about innovating for the aging population and how IP can help. I'm very pleased to introduce our two guests today. I'm here with Michael Krasowski from Agewell and Mark Ilias from Steadywear. Michael, could you please introduce yourself and say a few words about Agewell and the ecosystem that it supports? Sure, and thanks for having me here today, Izzy. It's great speaking with you and Mark. So my name is Michael Krastowski, and I am Agewell's Business Development and Industry Relations Manager. Agewell is Canada's technology and aging network. We've been around for about six years, and we support research and innovation into technologies, services, and policies that benefit older adults and their caregivers. And we do that with partnership of universities, researchers, startups, and uh, over 400 partners across industry, not-for-profit government and community groups. And really our mandate is just to ensure that technology can improve life for older adults. Thank you, Michael. It's a wonderful, wonderful organization at Agewell. Um, thank you, Mark, for coming to speak to us about your journey as co-founder and CEO of Steadywear. Maybe you could introduce yourself and talk a bit about the origins and goals of Steadywear. Uh, absolutely, and uh, thank you for having me today. Izzy. So, um, as you said, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Steadywear. Just a little background: so, our company develops uh, tremor stabilization gloves for individuals who suffer from uh, Parkinson's disease or essential tremor. Now, you know, just a little bit of background on the genesis of how this all started. You know, I do have uh, tremors in my family, uh, which is what really uh, fueled my resolve. Um, uh, to tackle this problem and, and make it you know, my mission uh, to improve the lives of individuals with tremors. Um, educationally as well, my background is in structural engineering from U of T, so that certainly helped um, with the development and uh, um, you know we're currently uh, about to release our second generation and uh, here we are today. Happy to, uh, happy to discuss more and uh, look forward to it. Thank you so much. It's really great to have you both here. Um, we met in Toronto's startup ecosystem years ago, and it's just, I have to say, it's been wonderful watching Steadywear and HWell evolve and succeed, um, you know, as, as time's gone by. So it's, it's just wonderful to have you here and, and sort of give us your perspectives. Um, so start, starting with Michael, um, you have a unique perspective at HWell because you work with a lot of really interesting um, companies that are evolving at different stages. What are the top three ch challenges that, um, that you see, uh, especially in, you know, companies that are innovating technology for the aging population. So, you know, there are probably some unique ones there. But what do you see in, in your experience? Yeah, and, you know, I think we obviously see a lot of different challenges, some that are common across sectors for startups. But if I were to think of the, the three most common ones we see, I mean, one is around understanding the customer, which in this case would be the older end user or um, it could be facilities or companies that provide services or care for older adults. Uh, a lot of startups we talk to, you know, they, in some cases, have only really interacted with um, end users who may have been in their family, but they didn't get a chance to get a broader perspective from other older adults, let's say. 
And uh, we find that sometimes because of that, that they see some challenges later on with, with the way their product is developed or even the way they market it or try to uh, sell and scale. So we do try to help as much as possible, connecting them with older adults inside panels and, and things like that to address that issue. Or if it is uh, connections and understanding, let's say senior living sector, which a lot of startups wouldn't necessarily be able to do without having connections there, we do try to make those contacts for them through our network because ultimately the best way to get those solutions to have an impact is for everyone to understand where the technology needs are and, and how it should be developed. Um, just quickly, so two other challenges. One is related to that, and it's really around validation. We get a lot of requests for trying to support pilots or getting connections just to get uh, technology into the hands of the end users or customers. So that's that's obviously related to the first, but it's a key a key component of the you know the product roadmap and even the go to market strategy and. I find a lot of startups will often really sometimes be delayed by that, trying to find places to to get that validation, to get that pilot going. And again, in some cases, we've been able to fund projects where this can happen, but in others, we might make those connections with with those in industry who are looking for new innovative solutions. And uh, then I guess finally, the third one, that I would think of is, is really at that later stage when the startups are looking to position themselves for investment and scaling. Uh, you know, a lot of times you'll have startups in different situations. Some have considered what they need to do way ahead of time, some not so much. And so when it comes time to really entering the market or, or going into in front of investors, uh, they may come to us with a range of questions, anything from you know, trying to better understand their their IP and what they should do or how they should address it all the way to um, how they should position themselves to grow in this market and show that they do have that potential for scalability you know, and, and a whole range of other topics around investment that probably uh, would make a podcast on its own. So uh, I'd say those are the three on, at different stages that we see most often. Yeah, no, that's that's really great uh, insight, actually. And you're right. I mean, I, these are the themes that we see as well when we're working with clients. So, you know, over to Mark, um, you know, you've had such an incredible journey and the product you're making is so meaningful. Um, and uh, I'm just wondering, you know, what what are your observations from your experience, you know, going through the, the, uh, the IP process and the patenting process? What insights do you have to share? Yeah, uh, thanks, Izzy. I mean, that's a great question, uh, and it brings back a lot of memories, I have to say. Uh, so, you know, any any hardware company knows that, you know, in the early stages, it's a teeth-grinding experimental process. I mean, you're trying out multiple different concepts and variations and going through rapid prototyping cycles and going through proof of concepts over and over again. So, you know, just drawing from what happened with us, you know, what we had done, is um, you know we would come up with a variation, run a test, and uh, and then we would file provisional uh, in the U.S. You know which which of course gave us some time to change it. But what we then realized is that the version that we ended up being most confident about did require a new provisional, which uh, we ended up abandoning the first one. So uh, you know I will say that I I, I do recommend you know any stage uh, any any an early stage hardware company that's very likely cash strapped and running a lean operation and trying to get to the to the proof of concept stage 
uh, you know, experiment fast and develop a level of confidence in the future direction of the tech prior to filing a provisional. I, I think it does. That will do the company a great service. And of course, uh, you know, the benefits of IP stretch from, um, you know, number one, solidifying your competitive advantage and, uh, you know, as well, it opens you up to invest in investment, but that's, um, we can delve, certainly delve further into that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's fair enough. And I think that's, that's a very fair point. I mean, one thing I would say is that is a question we often hear from people, from our clients and, and from people we're speaking with, you know, are we ready for patenting? Like, yeah. is this ready for capture? And that there's a balance of factors there. One is, you know, we're going to keep innovating. And of course, there is the possibility of filing multiple provisionals. And, and, and that's what we did. And that, that was actually quite useful. But at the same time, you know, you do want to make sure that, you know, you are at the right place for capture. So it is, it's something to sort of have discussion about and, and to really think about, you know, you know, what's going to happen. And, and the other part of it is, you know, innovations are continually happening. But you know, there are there are some mechanisms you can use to kind of capture as you go as well. But it is such a, a tricky balance. I, I agree. Um, so the other thing that I wanted to just sort of talk to both of you about is really, you know, part of the journey that that you had, Mark, and that a lot of companies have is there's collaboration within the university. And of course, you know, in this case, a lot of people are starting companies out of university and, and of course, have connections and their network is primarily in the university setting. So, you know, that's something I think that's that's that you see uh, both. You probably both see have have experienced um, this collaboration with uh, different organizations with different IP policies. And so that that can be, I think, a challenge at the early stage. I'm not sure what your thoughts are on that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I can certainly, I can certainly kick this off. I mean, you know, I, I do hear uh, a lot of stories, um, you know, regarding co-developments. Um, you know, whether it's a, a tech spinout from a university or when it comes to IP assignment. I mean, uh, you know, what typically happens? Let's say it's a co-development, and the co-development starts with uh, a company or an entity as well as the university. And the IP assignment discussion only starts to occur when things start coming to fruition. I, I do think that's a mistake. I think when it comes to co-development, it's so important to have uh, very clear boundaries on what's happening with the IP at the start, just to manage expectations on both sides and to reduce friction when it comes to the development. Uh, I think it serves really well in the long run. We're doing that right now. I mean, we're in a co-development agreement with, with UBC as well. And we made it very clear from the start. So even if it's a tech transfer or a spin-out, have conversations with the tech transfer office at a very early stage to understand the ramifications of what you're doing. Because I do hear a lot of horror stories about, uh, you know, whether it's a tech transfer or a spin-out or even a co-development where they've reached a point where they've developed something valuable and they're fighting over assignment. And, and I hate to see companies go through that. It's painful. Okay. Yeah, and just to add to that, I mean, I definitely second what uh, what Mark said, and I think sometimes I've seen some entrepreneurs, especially at the early stage, kind of be a little bit reticent to connect with their tech transfer office, um, and and even yeah. just to understand the IP policy. But I've I found it can actually bear fruit to obviously have those conversations early on, build that rapport, let everyone understand where it's going, get advice. Uh, I mean, ultimately, the tech transfer office can be very beneficial for you if you have that understanding. And those those that sometimes make assumptions that, you know, this is the way it's being developed. Uh, we understand who owns the IP. We, uh, we own it or maybe we're developing it outside the lab. Um, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, so that, that can lead to some issues later on. So it's 
it's always better to have those conversations, like Mark said, and to to do some due diligence early on just to understand the policy. And, and like I said, build that rapport. It can, it, it can definitely be uh, tricky if you if you choose to forego that and then later on address the after effect. I mean, it, it can cause a lot of issues, not, not the least of which is the being expensive, but even potentially, you know, jeopardizing your business. So definitely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I agree with Mark. Yeah, there. I agree. I mean, that that you know that sort of plays into sort of the, another thing we've been talking about, which is being investment ready. You know, I think there's you know a certain amount of work that needs to be done ahead of time to get your ducks in a row and make sure you know a big one of that really is around ownership of IP. So to have the understanding that yes, you know, invent the the ownership of an invention starts with the inventors, but then what happens to it after? What sort of obligations are there on the inventors to assign to other organizations, and and how does that how how does that kind of make its way? to the company that's potentially being funded by an investor. So, you know, that that's kind of, um, I think, something that a lot of companies have on their minds, being investment ready. Um, and I, I wanted to just start with Michael and, and ask you, you know, what is the, um, what sort of experiences um, have you seen HOL companies go through in terms of getting ready uh, for investment and the role of IP in, in that preparation? Yeah, I, th- I think... You know, obviously, going back to something Mark had said earlier, there are maybe different approaches startups have taken per IP, and uh, and considered early or not, and and even though you know Mark alluded to you know learning some lessons about how to you know when to file a provisional, <clears throat> you still see there's a lot of thought put into into IP early on, whereas uh, you know in some cases that doesn't happen, and and obviously it's, it can create some challenges, especially if there is collaboration with an academic institution where maybe some IP could even have been disclosed through a publication or a conference or whatnot. So uh, I, just, I just wanted to kind of touch on that a little bit. But in terms of what we see with with investments and, and startups getting ready there, uh, certainly we do think that the startups in, in this space, uh, what they often are looking to do is to show that validation and that their technology will be adopted. Now, depending on what stage they're at in terms of investment, seeking investment, they may or may not have had sales already. Uh, but uh, often when they speak to us, there's a lot there about making sure that they can demonstrate that things have been validated. And again, I mean, this ties in closely with IP and, and what is involved in that validation. Um, are, you, are you just testing something? Or are you potentially developing new IP as a result of that? validation or, or collaboration so all of that is often considered and and again we often will make those connections to to our partners such as bearskin and par to to ensure that that is handled properly but i mean I, i'm kind of thinking more about ip because of uh, this this conversation but certainly uh, there are other aspects of it that that we see uh, and and that is you know getting the right advisors on board for the team if if you don't have that expertise always for the sector, I mean, you may have been an engineer who developed a, a really important technology that can have a great impact, but perhaps you don't have as much of the expertise with your target population. And uh, in some cases, we see startups uh, looking for that to present uh, to their investors that they do have the right advisors on board um, strategically to, to help grow the business as well. So, I mean, those are some of the ones. And like I said, I mean, there's so much you can cover in this topic. But in terms it's, of age well, I think those, right. those are issues where we sometimes try to help or where we get questions. 
And I, I just love how you're speaking about what you talked about before, which is making connections for the for the for the companies that you're working with. I just think the power of that, making connections, and even you know, right now we're we're sort of still in the pandemic, and I think it's something that we can do for each other. We can make connections, mm-hmm. um, useful connections that you know that we 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 all have our own networks, and we all have have that facility. So I think it's wonderful that you do that at Agewell. Um, I don't know, Mark, if you have anything to add in terms of being investment ready and sort of what you found yeah. to be useful um, in, in terms of steadywear. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, this is um, this is such an important point uh, when it comes to intellectual property. Um, you know, I mean, when early stage companies are either, you know, uh, going for grant money or, you know, more specifically fundraising. I mean, going through that process myself, I can tell you mm-hmm. with a very, very high degree of certainty that the most common question after the tech is described is, do you have a provisional patent filing or any form of intellectual property? I mean, it's so clear that it's a big deal breaker for any investment, especially in hardware. I mean, you have some companies in software, of course, that's a whole different conversation. But when it comes to hardware, intellectual property is pivotal. Uh, it solidifies your competitive advantage. You know, the whole point is to reduce uh, reduce your competitive risk as well as perceived risk on the investor side. I mean, uh, if your company is raising money, having at least a U.S. provisional is extremely is extremely valuable. And actually, actually, no, it's vital. It's not valuable. It's mm-hmm. it's absolutely essential to to moving the conversation forward because most of the time, um, you know, companies that don't have any filing or even um, uh, or even try to consider it a, a trade secret. Uh, it, mm-hmm. it it doesn't come across as well as an actual filing. So, so they need a strategy. Uh, if they don't yeah. have a strategy, that can absolutely. fall really flat. Yeah, yeah. A- absolutely. And even even just filing uh, in the U.S., you know, the, it's uh, it's it, it's such a deterrent in and of itself that it's 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 a powerful strategy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, a lot of clients come mm-hmm. to us and say, you know, we have a budget, we have an IP budget, how can we best spend this mm-hmm. budget? And in terms of mitigating risk, and really, IP is there to help mitigate risk in, on a lot of levels. Um, and we'll talk yeah. about that in respect of manufacturing next. But, you know, in terms of mm-hmm. competitive um, advantage and making sure that you're mitigating your competitive risks, uh, the U.S. is a very powerful tool. So most competitors um, are going to try to commercialize, want to commercialize their product in the U.S. And so so by having a U.S. Uh, either you know an application and hopefully a patent down the road, um, you can essentially you know achieve that 80-20 rule where you really are getting quite a bit of coverage. And a lot of clients have this tendency to want to file in many, many, many countries. Of course, it's sort of a natural reaction. Um, but I think, you know, I spend a lot of time working with them and having conversations around, well, let's be really strategic. Let's make sure we are spending the IP budget in the best way. And, you know, let's maybe consider additional inventions to, uh, you know, to apply for in the U.S. and and maybe limit the foreign filing. And it would be better to have the budget go into, you know, additional filings. So that's a very good point that you raised. And I think, you know, that perspective comes with experience. So I really thank you for, for bringing that to us here. Um, thank you uh, for teaching me that. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So on the uh, on the manufacturing front, I mean, that's that's a very exciting when my clients are starting to make the product. That's a very exciting time. But it's also full of a lot of risks. And so, you know, I don't know, Mark, if you wouldn't mind sort of walking us through, you know, some of the, the hair raising experiences you've had, you know, with the offshore manufacturing um, and, and how you you know what your strategy is now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are lots of uh, lots of war stories come to mind, but I'll 
and, you know, I'll sort of describe the process we went through. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, when it comes to, to offshore manufacturing, I think once you're past the proof of concept stage and you're trying to um, reach the alpha prototype stage, which is essentially indistinguishable from the final version, I think it's really important to start interactions with your offshore manufacturers at an early stage to get samples, to build those relationships. That way, uh, you know, you de-risk your uh, your supply chain in the long run because you know your suppliers and you know the quality that they provide. So, that, 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 I mean, that's the first step. Start at late prototyping with them rather than, okay, we have the design master plan now, let's start reaching out. I, I think that's a mistake. Uh, also, you know, when it comes to intellectual property, I think, uh, you know, the strategy we've used essentially is to divide, uh, a divide and conquer strategy. So, um, you know, divide up your supply chain uh, to multiple different OEMs and, uh, you know, have each one of them see a part of the picture, build it and have the device assembled in a jurisdiction where you do have coverage. I mean, that really, uh, you know, mitigates the risk and really eliminates the risk of copying. Um, you know, if you, if you really divide up your supply chain and assemble everything, because assembly is the uh, assembly is where everything comes to light, where any any manufacturer can see exactly what's happening and ha- would have the ability to replicate it. So keeping that final stage of the process in-house or in a jurisdiction with coverage is is really essential if you want to eliminate that risk. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really that's really great to hear these very practical strategies, and and I think that's yeah. extremely helpful. I don't know, Michael, if you have any any feedback on uh, in terms of the manufacturing front. I mean, what do you see in the companies there at Agewell in terms of you know local manufacturing options, foreign manufacturing options? What kind of advice do you give companies that are looking to make their product? Well, one piece of advice I'd give is to talk to Mark, but uh, otherwise, I would uh, <laughs> I, I would I would say. You know, there are certainly some some local solutions I've seen uh, startups go to when, when they're prototyping and uh, developing at that stage. But I'd be interested actually to hear Mark's perspective on that. I mean, how much local resources could or, or should be leveraged at that early stage here in Canada? Oh, yeah, there are tons of them. I mean, you know, in the early stages of prototyping, there are so many... Uh, local facilities that can give really fast turnaround times for reasonable prices, um, you know, especially when you want 3D printed functional prototypes. I think it's the best way to go, especially when you're uh, in the early experimental phases. Um, and of course, you know, there are other options too. Uh, there are some uh, companies here that, uh, that that are full turnkey that can take you from early prototyping to production. Naturally, they source everything out of uh, out of the East. But they eliminate that bridge of communication and, you know, um, make it seamless for companies. You would pay a premium, but it is still an option for Canadian companies that are past the early prototyping stages to work with uh, essentially a middleman type of company that can organize it. So uh, I think there are lots of resources for rapid prototyping early here in Canada. And uh, there are also some bridges to the east with uh, with multiple firms as well. Yeah, you can find them easily. Right, and maybe yeah. one one thing on the later stage that I would add is uh, I've seen some companies in our network when they when they do get to manufacturing overseas, they sometimes are able to leverage some connections there to help you know 
help de-risk to an extent or, or just to help them understand the local environment and ecosystem, especially if you don't have you know anyone on your team that might be able to do that for you. So I've sometimes seen that done. And uh, I don't know, Mark, if you had to do any of that or not, but uh, I know I know I've seen it before. Yeah, certainly, Michael. I mean, you know, and especially in Toronto's ecosystem, uh, it's very collaborative. I mean, I always recommend uh, companies to just talk to other companies that are in the same realm because uh, it really goes a long way. I mean, for us, uh, you know, we got our manufacturing contact through another hardware startup that we interact with. They made the introduction and it was de-risked that way. I mean, they had done their due diligence and... Um, and uh, sort of vouched uh, vouched for them. So, uh, you know, I think uh, collaborating with other hardware companies in Canada going through the same problems really goes a long way. Uh, it's another way to, to vet, uh, you know, uh, manufacturers and supply chains. Naturally, you can, you can do it yourself. It just takes a little longer. But collaboration goes a long way. Yeah, that's how we did it. Yeah, I agree. Well, a collaboration like this is quite powerful, too. I think, you know, the strategies and the insights you've given both of you are, are going to be hopefully really useful to, to people listening. Um, so I, I just want to say a big thank you to both of you for the discussion today. Um, and if anyone uh, listening is innovating solutions for the aging population um, and wants to find out more about the services that AgeWell offers companies and their network, please reach out to Michael. I think you're, you're always happy to speak to people. Absolutely. Yes. And anyway, thank you so much for, for being here today. I think this was a fantastic conversation. Well, thank you so much for, uh, thanks so much for inviting us. And I, I'm, of course, very happy to, uh, to discuss anything, uh, you know, related to this with anybody. So uh, feel free to reach out. Uh, I'm wonderful. sure my information will be there. Yeah. That's wonderful. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Thank you for an informative episode. Information on this episode should not be taken as legal advice. You can subscribe to our podcast by visiting breskinpar.com slash podcast. There you can access all the episodes, additional information on each topic, and stay on top of what's happening with IP in Canada. So subscribe and follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. That way, you'll never miss an episode. It's free, and it notifies you when there's a new episode. Thank you for listening to today's episode presented by Bereskin and Parr, LLP. Until next time.